Coming up on Technation, looking around you and realizing just how precise all that technology you possess has to be in order to work. Simon Winchester joins us to talk about the perfectionists, how precision engineers created the modern world. Then on Technation Health, how do we do science on our immune systems, test new medications, ensure a treatment will work? We'll hear from Gigagen about building synthetic immune systems outside our bodies to do just that. Also, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will talk about transformative technologies. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There was a time in the 1980s when the chip industry in Silicon Valley was in real trouble. It wasn't that the engineers had problems coming up with new ideas or better technology. They were certainly in the solid embrace of better, faster, cheaper. But cheaper can mean a lot of things. That mantra is meant for the consumer. And let's remember, this was also a time before the World Trade Organization was created, and a nation's respect for intellectual property was a matter of choice. What was actually happening was twofold. The American chip companies were designing new chips, lickety-split, but manufacturing them was not a perfect process. In fact, it involved a lot of labor, and there were many opportunities for larger wafers, which held a number of identical chips, to be damaged or improperly produced. So when a company released new chips, it was expected that they weren't all perfect, and any problem chips would be replaced, also lickety-split. But that's not a great way to do business. A lot of effort was focused on the problems in the manufacturing lines so that problem chips could be traced back to a human or a machine problem. But that didn't help the fact that the chips had to get manufactured as quickly as possible because, well, the companies had to sell as many of the new chips as quickly as they could before the copycat chip companies jumped in. At the time, Japanese firms would get a set of any new chips and reverse engineer them. Then they would set up their own chip manufacturing line and sell the chips on the open market, far less expensively. If you don't already know it, designing and testing a new anything is almost always a far longer and expensive process than reverse engineering. Therefore, the cost of innovation, the bright idea, if you will, was not absorbed by the chip copy company. And that's not all. The labor market of the Japanese was far less expensive. Their standards were meticulous, and they could afford to do 100% testing of the chips they put out. This all added up to a nightmare. The reverse-engineered chips were better because of the innovation that was in them, and their manufacturing process. The chips were faster because of the innovation as well, and they were much, much cheaper. The Silicon Valley chip company called the time between the new product announcement and the entry of Japanese chips into the market, the honeymoon period. Once the cheaper chips were there, 
the honeymoon was over. Silicon Valley folks knew that they couldn't keep this up forever, and there was talk that the American electronics industry was doomed. But then something amazing happened. More and more of the chip manufacturing process was taken over by technology. The chips produced had fewer and fewer problems, and the manufacturing process itself became cheaper. It put the Japanese pretty much out of business. And eventually, with the World Trade Organization, the intellectual property behind the chips themselves became protected globally. So why remind us of this part of history? Well, remember all the worry about outsourcing work from the United States to other countries where the labor is so much cheaper? The Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. has published a study. It seems that the rise of automation is not only changing the profile of the American workforce, it's replacing many of the outsourced jobs performed in emerging countries for much less. Deja vu all over again. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, one important way to look at the arc of technology – precision, the ability to make products which are more and more precise. Simon Winchester joins me to talk about the perfectionists, how precision engineers created the modern world. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dave Johnson from Gigagen tells us about creating synthetic immune systems outside of the human body. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the term transformative technologies. Technology, precise technology, built the Industrial Revolution. I asked Simon Winchester, where did it start, when was that, and what were the initial technologies that brought it about? There was one machine above all that defined it, and that was the steam engine, which was invented, first of all, by a, a chap called Newcomen Cornwall, who used a very crude steam engine, or pumping water out of the tin mines in southwest England. But it was a terribly inefficient thing, and it wasn't until James Watt came onto the scene in the 1770s that uh, suddenly they realised that there was a way of improving the technology of uh, steam engines by having a secondary condensing cylinder. There's no point in going into all the details of it. But once that was created, and once it was made efficient, and it was made efficient by virtue of one man who's a key player in the whole precision story, a fellow called John Wilkinson, then the steam engine as a constant source of enormous amounts of power could then turn machines and make things that made other things, which was at the heart of what we now call the Industrial Revolution. So the, the crucial date 
is oddly enough all very similar to the crucial date of the beginning of the United States. It was the 4th of May 1776 when James Watt had his steam engine perfected by some a crucial, uh, not discovery, but a crucial technique inaugurated by a customer of his who was buying a steam engine from him called John Wilkinson. Wilkinson made the first cylinder fit the piston perfectly and consequently there was no gushes of steam coming out of this steam engine. It worked impeccably. It was astonishingly um, reliable and efficient and that he then made 500 of them making both of them very wealthy men but creating factories all over the United Kingdom and then all over Northern Europe, which made things in very large quantities and then changing the social life, the social makeup of these countries for all time. It's fascinating that this is at the same time as the American Revolution, if you will, and the founding of this country, because you can look in all the history books, you can watch any uh, documentary or even fiction on television or in the movies about that era, and no one sees anywhere in the colonies and then the United States a train. <laughs> there was no, You're absolutely no, There right. weren't any trains. <laughs> but there soon were. That's right. That's the extraordinary thing because of this simple fact that when you heat water to boiling point, it expands by 1,680 times into this gas called steam, and that can be made to work. And that's what the basis of, well, all power today, because all power stations, everything, whether they're fueled by nuclear or oil or propane or whatever, all goes back to making water get bigger and making it consequently do work. Now, you've, you've actually kind of woven in, in your, in your answer here, um, the need for precision so that steam doesn't come out of that steam engine while you're standing next <laughs> right. to it and in some particular way. Now, what's the difference between precision and accuracy? Well, in the book, carelessly and sort of conversationally, I tend to use the words somewhat interchangeably along with exactitude and so forth. But to an engineer, they're very different animals indeed. Accuracy is how close something is to your intention. In other words, if you're throwing darts, or as I'm in America, if you're firing a gun at a target, your intention is to hit the centre of the target. And if you do, then you're incredibly accurate. Precision, not necessarily hitting the target, but making sure that every shot Every arrow hits the same place, time after time after time. You do that, you achieve great precision. You're repeating the same action again and again. If you can combine precision and accuracy, such that you hit the centre of the target again and again and again and again, then you're a winner. But in terms of making things, the whole basis of making devices that work properly is that the parts from which you make them are all the same and are consequently interchangeable. And so the whole the thesis, the doctrine of making interchangeable parts is central to the world of precision. And that was something which came about at the end of the uh, 18th, beginning of the 19th century, largely in France, when a man called Honoré Blanc devised a way of making the ten or so parts that go up to make the flintlock of a flintlock gun. Um, and there's, you know, a spring and there's a trigger and there's the thing that actually strikes the spark from the, the, the flint. All of these things, if they're made exactly the same, then if you break a trigger, 
you just reach into a box and get another trigger, and it'll fit perfectly because all the other components are of the same size. Prior to that, if you broke the trigger of your gun, you had to go to the gunsmith and get a completely new gun made. So this was applied initially to the making of guns and then shortly thereafter the making of clocks, and thus was born mechanical precision and the making of machines that made these machines, a clock being a machine, a machine that makes a machine is called a machine tool, and these are once again central to this whole world of precision. And you see it all around you if you just realize what you're looking at. I mean, you pick up the lowly screw, and we're talking about it has to be standardized again and again. We don't make a different screw every time we pop it out, or we have a major problem. And here we meet John Whitworth. Amazing man, looked fearsomely ugly, a hugely tall, and he looked to someone said like a baboon when you look at the picture <laughs> of him in the book, and he does indeed uh, look rather simian. Um, anyway, but he was a wonderful engineer, and he, in concert with another fellow called Henry Maudsley, these were two key players, the screw was central to both of their lives, making of micrometers which could measure things to very, very tight tolerances, one of them in a museum still in Tokyo to this day, was so refined it could measure up to a millionth of an inch. And we're talking about the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. But it was called the Lord Chancellor because no one would dare argue with the Lord Chancellor. Its results were so respected. And these two men also, sort of competitors in this world, both came up with the technique for making perfectly flat surfaces. And to make something perfectly flat is crucial to the making of proper machines, but it's a very difficult thing to do. And I remember my father, who was himself a precision engineer, bringing into our dining room on one day when I was about eight years old, I think, a series of what are called Joe blocks or gauge blocks, which are little pieces of highly polished steel with astonishingly flat surfaces. And if you put one on top of another, which he did for me on the dining room tablecloth, and then said, take the top one off, it won't come off because it's adhering astonishingly tightly to the one underneath it. Not magnetism. These are stainless steel, which is, of course, not magnetic. You cannot pull them apart. You can slide them apart, and that's a technique called ringing, W-R-I-N-G-I-N-G. But you can't pull them apart because they're so flat. There are no asperities on in the surface that allow air to creep in and make it easy to pull them apart. And the molecules seem to bond together, so the two pieces of metal briefly become one. So Maudsley and uh, Whitworth, important making screws, important setting up standards. Indeed, today most screws will give their, um, the numbers will be BSW, which is British Standard Whitworth, because he was the man that came up with proper screwed gauges. These two consolidated all the work that had been done before them by people like um, uh, engineers, the steam engineers, uh, Wilkinson and so forth, and codified precision. And that's where we are in the middle of the 19th century. Well, there's so many stories in your book, including your father, who was a precision engineer with everything else he did all his life. But I want to talk about the story which actually led to the writing of your book. Let's recount that. Well, it was a complete stranger who wrote to me. Um, I get, I suppose, twice or three times a week people write in and say, um, I think you'd like to write a book about my grandfather who fought in the Afghan war, that sort of thing. And their ideas, you know, I very much appreciate people writing, but they're often, they don't smell right. There's something off about them. But this chap, who I'd never heard of, lives in Clearwater, Florida. His name is Colin Povey, 
wrote to me and said, you know, I think you, I've read all your books and I rather like them. Um, would you be interested in writing a book about precision, which is everywhere. It pervades everything to do with modern life. And yet nobody really knows what it is. Nobody knows when it began. Nobody knows when it'll end. And so he became over, this was five or six years ago now, and he corresponded weekly, I suppose, giving me tips and guidance on how to do it and what kind of areas of precision to look at. And he became a valuable helpmeet. But I've never met him. But we're going to meet during this book tour that I'm on at the moment, so I'm very excited. But the other day, he sent me a trinket to celebrate the publication of the book. He is a scientific glassblower. This is a small fraternity of people who make very complicated glassware for use in laboratories around the United States. He sent me this little box, and I opened it, and inside was a thing called a Klein bottle. And a Klein bottle is a three-dimensional version of a Mobius strip. You'll remember a Mobius strip as if a two-dimensional piece of paper with only one surface. This three-dimensional glass bottle has only got one surface. They're fantastically difficult things to make, but he made it. And the wonderful thing about it, in my mind anyway, is that although he, Colin, is fascinated by the world of precision, what he sent me was absolutely imprecise, but very, very beautiful, because he... Interested though he may be in precision as a as an idea, still clings to joy in craftsmanship. And so I know that long after my iPhone 8, which has four and a half billion transistors in it, has been consigned to the uh, spoil heap, this little piece of glass, which is imprecise, human scale, that'll continue to exist. And what I like about his grandfather's story, which I hope you'll tell, is that no matter how hard we work, it's hard to make all these things work. <laughs> it's not just make it precise and it works. You've really got to look at it. Let's recount that story. The story of Mr. Povey Sr. was that he worked for the British Army. This is um, before the Second World War. And he was obviously a very interesting guy. He classified himself as a Hindu, so he didn't have to go to church service. So he was a bit of a rebel, I think. And he was, he was an expert engineer, and he was sent to Washington. This is before the United States got into the war, so he had to go in civilian clothes. And he was told by the war office back in London to investigate why a number of shells, artillery shells, that the British Army was using in the North African desert, having been made in America, were occasionally misfiring. I mean, shells ought to be all exactly the same. And so he went to the factory in Michigan where these shells were made and checked them. He took every micrometer that he had in his possession and all of them with the right size should have fitted themselves into the guns. And the war office said, well, if you can't find a mistake there, then follow these shells all the way to the North African desert. So he went in an ammunition train from Detroit to somewhere like Washington, D.C., an East Coast port anyway, let's say it was Baltimore, and then got on the troop ship, and there were all sorts of dangers in that story. It was very difficult for him, not least, and this gave him the answer to the problem, that there was a fantastic storm. And when he measured the shells, he realised what was happening. Because they left the factory in impeccable condition. They got onto a ship, and if the ship was there wasn't a storm, then they left the ship in, in impeccable condition. But on this particular voyage, the ship rolled violently, and the wooden boxes in which the shells were 
banged against the hull, the interior of the hull, the ones that were facing outward, with the pointed tips facing outward, hit themselves repeatedly against the hull of the ship, and the shell, the bullet, as it were, was pushed backwards into the cartridge case, just by a tiny amount, but it raised a rim of maybe quarter of a millimetre or something on the outside of the diameter of the cartridge. So when they reached the artillery pieces in the North African desert, a shell like that wouldn't fit properly inside the gun or would misfire, would explode. So Colin Povey, Colin Povey Sr., this is, recognised what had happened. All that needed now to occur was that the factory in Detroit would put them in padded wooden boxes so they could bash back and forth as as they may care for, and with them instantly, he um, solved the problem. So he arrives in North Africa, and now he's solved the problem, but no one gives him any orders of what to do. He's got heaps of back pay, because he's been on a ship and he's been wandering around the desert forever, and so he's now very rich and has no job at all. Uh, but he thinks after a few months of living in the desert, he should go back to the United States. So using whiskey as a bribe, he goes to Timbuktu, of all places, gets a flight to Miami, of all places, goes back to Washington to find that his unit has disappeared. And he's presumed missing, presumed dead. So all his clothes have been given away to somebody else. <laughs> but he manages to get a new set of clothes, goes to where his unit is based, which is, I think, in Baltimore, then meets the American secretary of that unit, falls in love with her, marries her, and eventually has a child, Colin Povey, my friend, a friend who I've never met, who says, I was born as a direct result of inquiry into precision. So you definitely should write this book. <laughs> and what's terrific about that is that this tells the listener now what you talk about. You don't just say, well, here's the problem with the uh, shell. <laughs> it's like, no, it's everything else in the world. Right. Engineers are real people. They very, live very in a real world, and they have to figure out how to solve these problems. <laughs> well, he was a clever man, obviously. You're listening yes. to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Simon Winchester. You know him from his many books, including A Crack in the Edge of the World, The Professor and the Madman, and Krakatoa. He's here today with The Perfectionists, how precision engineers created the modern world. Well, I was trying to pick out who should we talk about, and I realized that many Americans know the story of Henry Ford and, the, and his great assembly line and the Model T. But less familiar to them is the story of Charles Rolls and Henry Royce of Rolls-Royce. The two Henrys. Henry Royce and Henry Ford, both born in 1863, both born into relative poverty, both fascinated with the early motoring technology, most of which came out of France, which is one of the reasons that most of the words in the, in the lexicon of, of motor cars is French, automobile and garage and carburetor and so on and so forth. And they both bought, independent, didn't know each other, of course, de Dion quadricycles, which was a a manufacturer outside Paris took two bicycles, put struts joining them together, and on those struts he mounted a crude two-cylinder gasoline engine. And the thing chugged along quite merrily, very noisily. And both men bought these things and decided we can make motor cars, and met many of them, and properly. But there their paths diverged, because Henry Royce 
up in Manchester in England said, what I'm going to do is to make the quietest, the best, the most perfect motor car ever made. Whereas Henry Ford in Dearborn in Michigan said, I'm going to make the least expensive, the most affordable, most popular car ever made. And so what I look at in, in the book is two cars, both inaugurated in 1908 and both of which enjoyed a lifespan which ended in the early 1920s. One in Manchester was the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, and the other in Michigan was the Ford Model T. They made 8,000 Rolls-Royce Silver Ghosts. They made 16 million Model Ts, and one might argue, one certainly can argue, that the Model T changed the face of America. It led to the building of roads, it led to well, the mobility of the ordinary working man. Um, but the important thing from my perspective in the story is that you might think that the Rolls-Royce, with all its luxury and its quietude and its eternal... I mean, most of those Rolls-Royces still exist to this day in 2018 of the 8,000 that were made. You'd think, on the face of it, that that was the more precise machine. In fact, precision was much more important to the making of the assembly line-based machines. Because in Rolls-Royce, if a piece didn't fit perfectly, then a skilled machinist by hand, a craftsman, would use a file and make it fit. Whereas using interchangeable parts, this crucial centerpiece of the precision world, in an assembly line, if one piece happens not to be precisely made, then the whole assembly line grinds to a halt. Thousands of dollars are at stake. Workers stand around idly doing nothing until they find out the problem, put in the right piece, and start the assembly line up again. So, oddly enough, Henry Ford is a greater champion of precision than a man who is revered for making precise uh, motor cars, and that's Henry Royce. And it should be noted, of course, that Henry Royce was the mechanic. His partner, the Honourable Charles Rolls, was a swell and a salesman. And when they got together in 1904... They called the company Rolls-Royce, but engineers to this day think that the company should always have actually been called Royce-Rolls. And they don't call, if you go to the factory, or we're not used to go to the factory, they would never say, there goes a Rolls, as the car went out of the factory. They'd say, there goes a Royce. Well, you might say Rolls was to Royce as Steve Jobs was to Steve Wozniak. <laughs> exactly right. Yes, yes, you're quite right. Yeah, but they needed both. They needed both to be a it success. <laughs> now, it's quite interesting when you look at these assembly lines and when you look at precision because no matter how precise you get, it could always be more precise. And I'd like to talk about tolerance. What is a tolerance when we're talking about precision? The technical definition of tolerance is the allowable variation in size from one component to fit into another. In other words, if you have a 0.303 cartridge, it can perhaps be 0.303001. So in other words, can the tolerance can be to six places of decimals. Beyond that, it won't fit. So the way I actually have organized the book is by ever-increasing tolerances or vanishingly small numbers. Um, going back to the fit of Wilkinson's piston inside a James Watt steam engine, that was the tolerance between the outer edge of the piston and the inner edge of the cylinder was the thickness of an English shilling, which is 0.1 of an inch. 
I've been speaking with Simon Winchester, the author of The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the World. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, creating synthetic immune systems outside of the human body. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the term transformative technologies. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Simon Winchester, the author of The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the World. We've just been speaking about how he organized his chapters to reflect the fact that technology became more and more precise. Going back to uh, the fit of Wilkinson's piston inside a James Watt steam engine, that was the tolerance between the outer edge of the piston and the inner edge of the cylinder was the thickness of an English shilling, which is 0.1 of an inch. So the tolerance there is 0.1. In the next chapter, I try and look at things which are 0.0001, so 0.10 thousandth of an inch. And then you get up to, well, today, arguably the most precise thing ever made by human agency is also a cylinder, not a cylinder of iron, but a cylinder of fused silica, which is in at the heart of two big experiments, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana, called LIGO, which, as many will know, stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And these things, the heart of their mechanism, if you can call it that, it's all to do with firing lasers at things, is a cylinder that reflects the laser back and forth. And that laser had to be made not to 0.1 of an inch or 0.0001, but point and then 38 zeros and then a one. So you're getting really to the edge, almost to the absurd end of things when we talk about modern ultra-precision. 
We're so compelled to measure everything, even if it's not measurable. Um, And one of the things that is a construct of man, uh, and we measure all the time, and we try to measure even better, is time. But there is no here's the time in the universe. It is extraordinary. I mean, the whole philosophical discussion of what is time, it is duration. But that's a very glib answer. How do you measure it? How do we measure it? Over, what have we done over the centuries? Well, we've divided, the, as you know, although the French had other ideas, but um, you essentially divide the day into 24 hours and the hour into 60 minutes and the minutes into 60 seconds. So the second is the key that humankind has decided to use to measure. And the way that that is defined, um, it used to be one eighty-six thousand four hundredth of a day. And then they realized that a day was a sort of variable thing, and it became a much bigger number, fraction of a year. But then years themselves vary. So it's now all down to radiation and complicated things like that, and laboratories all over the world, including, most importantly, the National Institute of Metrology in Beijing, is leading the charge on defining the second to multiple, multiple uh, decimal points. But in the world at large, the centerpiece of this effort is a U.S. Air Force base in Colorado called Shevet Air Force Base, where the Second Space Operations Division is. They manage the 32 GPS satellites, which are flying around all the time, which contain very accurate clocks and which beam their time signal back and down to us using our iPhones or whatever. So thanks to GPS, thanks to the U.S. Naval Observatory, thanks to the people at the Air Force Base in Colorado, we can tell to fractions of a microsecond exactly what the time is. Time, however, being a human construct in which we humans have decided to define. Perhaps the greatest tribute to precision is the semiconductor, the fact that first of all they could get it so small and then they just start stamping them out. It is quite extraordinary. The semiconductor, the transistor, let's specific version, um, was originated at Bell Labs in the late 1940s. And the first one, which you can see at the museum there, is about the size of a child's hand. And they developed ways of making them smaller and smaller and smaller and integrating them, making them integrated circuits. Of The f- first one, really, was the Intel 4004, which had, I think, 2,300 transistors on it. And the size of the transistor has come down and down and down ever since obeying the famous Moore's Law, which computing power doubles every two years now, every one year, every two years now. And that law has... Um, essentially remained true to the point where now the little chip about the size of my fingernail inside my iPhone 8, there's a chip called an A11 made in Taiwan, has 4.3 billion transistors in it. There are more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world. It's an astonishing number. And they're largely made by gigantic machines made in Holland, of all places, by a company nobody ever hears of called ASML. These machines, each one uh, takes three jumbo jets to bring it to what they call a fab, a fabrication plant, where these chips are made on the designs by the customers, people like Intel being a principal one, or Apple, which is another. 
and using the technique of photolithography, they actually use, just like in a, a darkroom in larger, you have the design and they take it down using magnifying glasses in reverse, as it were, until you get them imprinted on these tiny wafers of silica. And um, that is the basis of the chip that you see in your, in your iPhone. But the problem is that now you're operating with these microscopic, literally microscopic, because the transistors today are much smaller than the wavelength of light, meaning you cannot see them in visible light. Um, you're getting down to atomic levels. And the spacing between them is just a fraction of an atom. And then things, if you know your Heisenberg, starts operating very peculiarly. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? The photons, electrons, it all goes a bit weird. So are we reaching a limit? And that's a, a big question which occupies the minds of many, at least in the electronic precision world. Now I want to end with your discussion of Japan, a culture which reveres both precision technology and the artisan making items by hand. In Japan, this is an integrated art. Yes, and, and it seemed to me that uh, we all know that they make wonderful things of bamboo, wonderful things of wood, wonderful things of lacquerware. But I wanted to go to a factory which makes things both mechanically and by hand to sort of illustrate this interesting dichotomy within Japan between the precise and the imprecise. And so I went to Morioka, a town in northern Honshu, to see Seiko. Seiko invented the quartz watch and well, the quartz watch movement. So in the factory, you go up to the second floor of this quite large factory in, in the west of Morioka. It's an assembly line making these tiny little things, and so it's at sort of waist height like a model railway. And it's making about 25,000 movements a day. And it makes a tremendous noise, and there are just a few technicians overseeing it and oiling the bearings and things as these things come off the assembly line. So that's, in a way, the depressing side. You go through a door and the noise of the production line stops and you're going into a sort of cathedral-like quiet. And there are maybe 20 or 30 men and women there who are hand-making mechanical watches, which have things that the quartz watch doesn't have, have hair springs and mainsprings and bearings, and it makes a sound of the ticking that we may remember. The quartz watches are impeccably accurate. They'll take tell you your time to hundredths of a second. The watch is made by hand. They have to be wound every day and they maybe are inaccurate to or accurate only to 10 seconds a week, something like that. But bravo, I say to the Japanese who continue employing craftsmanship to make watches and don't give a fig for whether the watch is as precise as it might be because it is part of humanity. I mean, after all, there's nothing about us as human beings that is precise. There are no straight lines in nature. So Japan reveres imprecision with as much weight as it reveres precision. And I like the fact that in Japan, the government itself, and this is true in Korea as well, it awards to craftsmen and women the honour, the title of living national treasure because they're keeping alive craftsmanship and not bowing down to the great god of precision which dominates the rest of Japanese society. I wish this were true elsewhere. Simon, thank you so much for joining me. I, I hope you'll come back and see us again. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you very much indeed.
My guest today is Simon Winchester. The book is The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Each of us has one and only one immune system. So how do we do science, develop new medications, make sure a treatment is the right one? What if we could develop a copy of our immune system outside of our bodies, which could be tested again and again? That's where Gigagen comes in. They call it building a synthetic immune system. We'll also hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft about a new term you might have noticed, transformative technologies. When Dave Johnson, the CEO of Gigagen, was last on Tech Nation, he talked about creating synthetic immune systems, ones that could be tested and worked with outside of the human body. I asked him to start by reminding us, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, we developed a technology that allows us to take primary immune cells and then turn them into a synthetic immune system. So they're, they're essentially immortal. So you can study them over and over again and get a sense on what's going on in those immune cells. And um, those immune cells would normally be in our body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you take B cells or T cells out of your body and then turn them into something that you can study. You know, the problem is that uh, those primary immune cells, they don't they just don't survive very well outside of the body. So you have to turn them into something more um, uh, immortal. So you don't need the patient so much. Yeah. You can start with and do a whole lot of work with the synthetic immune system. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you just have to recruit the patient once, and then you can take you can get all sorts of data and information out of that um, of that one sample. Yeah. Now, of course, we're in the big bang of immunotherapy here, yeah. immuno oncology. Yeah. Um, how does creating this synthetic immune system uh, play into the work in immunotherapy? Yeah, well, I think the big question out there, uh, so I was uh, visiting my parents in Cape Cod uh, over the weekends, and my dad likes to read about science. You know, I'm in the field, but it's just something he's interested in as well. And he kept asking me, Dave, you know, there's this miracle drug, Keytruda. It works amazingly well when it works, but it only works in about 40% of patients. And, uh, you know, he said, Are, who's working on that? Who's solving that 60% of patients? Who, who, you know, I said, well, Daddy, we are actually working on that. Um, and so we and others are trying to figure out why do those 60% of patients not respond? And a lot of people who are in the field think that this has something to do with a specific, uh, something called a tumor microenvironment. So basically what's going on inside of the tumor that's specific to that patient. Uh, You know, what are the immune cells? What are the different cells that are infiltrating? And um, what are they doing? Why do they respond? Why don't they respond? And so we're actually now applying our synthetic immune system technology to look at those lymphocytes, those specific white blood cells that are infiltrating the tumor, 
and see what they're doing across dozens of patients. Um, and what we're hoping is that that will allow us to understand the interaction of different genes, and then those can become the new drug targets, uh, specifically for the patients that need them. So that's what's exciting, I think. Now, when we talk about something like a Keytruda, um, is it modifying or, or attacking or attaching to immune cells? Yeah, so, so right. So, so the, the immune system basically gets tricked by the tumor, okay? So there are signals that the tumor gives to the immune cells, and it says, don't kill me, right? So those tumor, the, sorry, those T cells, then they have what we call their brakes on, right? So they're basically in an immune-suppressed state. And so they don't end up actually killing the they tumor. They say, okay, don't kill you, fine. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. But you should because it's a cancer cell. Yeah, and so they might even have signals on the cell surface that say, kill me, but yet these suppressive signals end up, uh, you know, again, turning the brakes on. It's literally like that. And so a lot of those cells that are living in the tumor are actually in a state that they, they just kind of sit there and they don't really actually kill the tumor. So Keytruda, what it does is it literally takes those brakes off by blocking one of those signals that essentially um, keeps, the, keeps the cells from, from killing the tumor. Yeah, so, so there are different signals. Uh, some are on the tumor side, some are on the immune cell side, and uh, the drugs can block those signals, which actually end up activating the immune cells themselves. And then those immune cells can go in and kill the tumor, and you have remarkable um, clinical results when that happens. So what can taking immune cells and being able to preserve and amplify them and study them do in this environment? Yeah. Uh, so one of the challenges with these tumor samples is they're, they're full of uh, interesting immune cells where you can start to really figure out the mechanism of that immune cell tumor interaction. And uh, they're difficult cells to work with, as you'd imagine. Um, you know, you take a tumor out, you culture them in a, in a dish, and, you know, it takes a lot of work to get them to grow. And so, so they, they can die very quickly. And so what we're able to do is take those cells and um, run them through our technology and, again, turn them immortal. So then we can study them over and over again and really figure out what's going on with all the different genes in those, in those immune cells. Um, and then if we have the, the tumor as well, we can then start to match up that interaction between the immune cells and the, and the tumor. So you're getting a much bigger picture about what's happening yeah. on the inside of a tumor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, older style of research, um, basically what they would normally do is they'd take a tumor and then they, they slice it up and then they, they basically stain for specific genes and that gives you a fair amount of information, but uh, you know, once you do the staining, it's, it's done, and there really isn't much discovery you can do there. There's no new genes that you can discover because, you know, again, once you stain it, it's done. You can only look for what you already know. And so for, for discovery, for, again, finding that 60% of patients who don't respond, we're going to have to discover new stuff. We have to take a more systematic kind of approach to really look at a high level what's going on in that interaction. So what are you doing? What are we actually doing right now? Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, we're, um, uh, we're hoping to build the next generation of immuno-oncology drugs. And, um, and in order to do that, 
uh, we need to do better than 40%. And so, so we're looking for novel targets, um, new ways that drugs can, can work together um, to, to produce better clinical results. And, and I think a key to the research as well is being able to select the right patients. And so for me, it's not only sad that only 40% of patients respond to Keytruda, it's also sad that you don't know which ones until you try it, right? And so for me, it's really important to have a drug where I can pre-select which uh, patients are actually going to do well on that particular drug. And then, you know, again, you know, my goal is in a clinical study, okay, you know, I might not be able to address the entire population, but if I know that given certain genetic markers, I can get up to 90%, wow, that's awesome, right? Because then you're not giving people a drug that you you, they don't you know, need. won't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive to the healthcare system, and you know, every time a drug doesn't work, there's a chance somebody's going to just die because they, you know, they lost that time, they lost that window of opportunity to treat the cancer early. Um, so I think it is really important to find those patients um, and have essentially know what the genes are that that these drugs you know w- will work on and, and look for those ahead of time so you can help those patients normally when i'm talking to scientists they say we found this sort of one pathway into the cell or we found this one protein on the surface yeah. of the cancer cell and they keep talking about one yeah one one at best <laughs> they're like we're doing two it's like that's really yeah two. you're <laughs> yeah. kind of looking at the whole thing yeah yeah no we're unusual I, I i think the first thing is maybe we're too ambitious i don't know but um this has generally been my approach um so it, uh Looking back at my story, I come from a genomics lab, and the whole idea of genomics is you take a, the, a view of the entire system, right? You're, you're, you're never saying, I really care about this one gene. I'm going to study it for six years to get my PhD, right? Uh, we're more looking at the entire system, and, and I've been taking that approach uh, to, to study and work on disease as well guys who believe in one gene, they might be right, and they may have a multi-billion dollar drug. But for me, you know, this is my particular scientific niche, and this is our, our way of approaching the problem. And I think kind of steering back to the idea of a synthetic immune system, um, you know, I, I think I'm going in a way where it might not even be one gene that we're targeting in our drugs, okay? We're actually probably going to be looking at, say, okay, maybe there are several genes, and maybe it's actually even patient-specific, right? And so taking a more, um, again, approach to look at the system where, you know, realistically what happens if you drug one gene in the tumor, it's likely they'll figure out a way to evade that one treatment. That happens all the time. And, and so if, if you have an idea of what the tumor will do next, you know, just drug all that from the start, and you've got a much better chance of actually killing the tumor and, and curing. And you could see that in yeah. your synthetic immune yeah. system. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Learn yeah. anything so far? Yeah, well, I can't talk too much about what we're doing. Oh, you uh, can tell us. <laughs> <laughs> millions of my friends, only they will know. Yeah, I mean, so, so what we've been doing so far... Uh, uh, so there's a gene called PD-1, okay? And so that particular gene is known to be something like a, a master regulator. It, it basically is kind of like the first gene that, that gates a whole bunch of other pathways. Um, 
And those pathways all have to do with how immune cells sort of turn off. Like, how do they get their brakes turn, turned off, turned on? And so we're looking carefully at different genes that are correlated with that one particular gene, PD-1. And we're looking across dozens of different kinds of tumor tissues and then seeing what the immune cells in those tumor tissues are also doing. And we're, we're seeing really interesting things. Even within one, you know, what a doctor might call one cancer type, there's clear uh, distinct patterns in, you know, there, there are splits within that, you know, maybe it's a breast carcinoma, right? And maybe there are three different kinds of, um, of signatures that are, that are seen even within this not one tumor just, type. Not just one, yeah. three signatures. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we're seeing that over and over again with all different kinds of tumors. And so, so again, you know, we're, we're, off, we're often looking at, okay, so, so maybe this gene is, is, is our sort of um, our, our key to that whole system. But then looking at all different hundreds or dozens or however many different genes that are co um, are, are co-expressing with those. Well, I've enjoyed yeah. talking to you, Dave. Yeah, thank you. I hope I hope you come back to see us again. Yeah, we hope so too. Thanks for the time. Dave Johnson is the CEO of Gigagen. More information is available at gigagen.com. That's G-I-G-A-G-E-N. Gigagen.com. There's a new term you might have noticed, transformative technologies. TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explains. It's sort of the, the broad concept that we're living in an age of exponential technologies from our smartwatches to our connected homes. Sometimes that doesn't help our mental state and even help us be more connected to friends and, and family. We have a rise in stress, anxiety, depression, suicide, uh, loneliness, folks who are disconnected. And the idea that we could potentially use some of these new technologies to connect us in new ways, transformative technology to improve the human condition or maybe even super enable it. Um, so on the sort of health and medicine side, how would we reduce loneliness, isolation, improve our happiness, our ability to connect, empathy, uh, to normal stress management? And then on the far end, how do we improve our mental capacities? How do we get wiser, um, super connected, unleash our creativity in new ways? And there's some really interesting technologists and psychologists and mental health professionals and, and citizen scientists working on this new field that technology can be a force for good to take something that might have been scarce, like access to psychological help, make it abundant, and to use those tools uh, from big data and sensors to wearables to our connected environment to improve our personal psychology and enhance health and the ability to thrive around the planet. We're already seeing school kids do mindfulness training at, at school. You don't, again, you do not need any fancy technology to close your eyes and, and focus on your breath. Reading, <laughs> writing, arithmetic, and mindfulness. What? All those. And, and we know that <laughs> kids uh, who do this have lower rates of attention deficit disorder type behaviors. Uh, and we're seeing an explosion of these sorts of you know, embedded technologies in this digital connected mobile age. You can now use the microphone on your phone to listen to your voice and companies like Beyond Verbal can listen to emotional states or even pick up signs of heart disease or neurologic disorders. Uh, there are companies called Effectiva trying to do this where they measure emotional states in response to advertising to a movie. That might be a bit on the dark side, but ways to, again, measure behavioral states. We're seeing platforms like Ginger.io, which used our digital exhaust to pick up signs of potential mental issues ranging from depression to 
mania and to bring sort of psychological help. There's even a new startup spun out of Stanford called Mindstorm Help, where your typing on your smartphone or your computer uh, can be used as a clue to changes in your brain state like depression or other mental issues. That's sort of on the, on the mental side. Ideally, these are going to start to optimize our health and wellness. Our Alexas and Google's Homes, which listen to our voices, one of the most common asks to those devices today is, you know, Alexa, help me relax. And that's a form of a transformative technology when you can say, Alexa, help me relax, and a meditation app plays or a guided yoga practice. So I think we're at the early stages of this, of this field where there's a whole new slew of these technologies that can sort of detect behavior change, nudge us in smart directions, but then also start to help us focus. In fact, music is a great form for focus. Maybe heavy metal won't be your style or my style. <laughs> Maybe Mozart. I give you some biofeedback on that, buddy. Right. One of the, uh, a pretty well-known uh, musician named Will Henshaw, uh, which used to be in London Beat, has several number one or two hit singles. I uh, got very interested in music and focus, and now has a website called Focus at Will, where it'll, it'll play music at you designed to help your brain focus. Eventually, those will be tracking your physiology and respond in real time. Um, heart rate variability, which can be done from many of our, our wearables today. What is the frequency between beat to beat? Is there variation? Is it every second? Is it changing from time to time? That's called heart rate variability. That could be something that you can use to sort of get a measure of your stress and then to hopefully optimize your response to that. Um, we've talked in prior shows about electricity as medicine, electroceuticals, devices that you can wear that can be thought to stimulate your brain in new ways to improve your ability to be creative and to solve problems or to relax. Uh, so instead of a cup of caffeine, you may have a, a device that triggers our brain. These are all early examples of transformative technologies from triggering our brain to our vagus nerve to haptics that give us feedback, extend our ability to connect to others. That blends with things like virtual and augmented reality. We've seen VR and AR being used to treat pain, manage PTSD, and also social VR. All these things are just, again, tools to bring us to a state that you know monks have been doing for, for thousands of years um, that, that we're starting to see become democratized around the planet. Well, Daniel, fascinating. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.